Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, here in Nashville, Tennessee, and today I'm glad to be joined by my colleague, the Executive Vice President of the ERLC, Philip Bethencourt. Philip, before joining the ERLC, was the Vice President of Enrollment Management and Assistant Professor of Christian Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Philip holds a PhD in Systematic Theology from Southern Seminary there. Today we're going to talk about leadership with Philip. There's very few people I've met in my life who understand organizational leadership, managing people, people skills, relationships better than Philip. He just has an intuitive sense of these things. He's very gifted in that area, and I've learned much from him. We're going to talk about churches and organizations. How do you have visionary leadership? How do you motivate people? How do you establish a culture that fosters learning and creativity and growth? Uh, we're also going to talk about Philip's beloved Aggies. He's a huge Texas A&M fan, booster, whatever you want to call him. He's an alum of uh, Texas A&M, and he wears it proudly. We're going to talk about the upcoming season. And then we're, we're going to ask and discuss how churches can position themselves uh, for changes in the culture all around us, same-sex marriage and some of the other cultural changes, how churches can best be prepared. Before we begin our conversation with Philip, however, I want to tell you I'm very excited about my new book that's releasing September 1st, titled The Original Jesus. I'm excited about this project. I think it's going to help a lot of Christians think through their views of Jesus. Uh, the reason I wrote this book is that I saw in my own heart and and really in just the evangelical world, a tendency to kind of create a Jesus in our own image rather than being conformed to the image of the Christ that who is. So I encourage you to go get this book, The Original Jesus. We'll have links on my website, danieldarling.com. You can buy it anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Lifeway, uh, any bookstores uh, that you frequent. But for now, let's join our conversation with my colleague and my boss, Phil Bethencourt. So I'm here with Philip Bethencourt, our executive vice president here at ERLC, and otherwise known as my boss. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, Philip. Glad to be here. And uh, Philip is a, uh, I call him a leadership guru. He's probably one of the best leaders that I've worked for, and so I want to pick your brain on leadership and organizational life and all that stuff. So I guess the first question is, by way of background, where did you learn leadership? I mean, is it something that you developed as you were going through college at Texas A&M. I'm sure you're going to credit A&M quite a bit there, being a proud Aggie that you are. Was it from your dad, who was a you know an executive for major corporation? So how did you learn? Well, I think for everybody, there's a couple of things at play when it comes to developing leadership. And a lot of that does have to do with the home that you grew up in. I, I grew up in a home not just with a great leader. My dad was a great leader. But I think what really set things apart for me is he was very intentional about creating situations where we would have to grow as leaders and develop. Uh, so I, I remember vividly one day in high school, him us sitting down at the dinner table, and we were having guests over, and he pulled me aside beforehand and said, Philip, at, at tonight's dinner conversation, I want you to be the one that leads the conversation. I want you to make sure the conversation's wow. going, that people are involved, that we're learning more about others. 
and, and you're not just a participant. And that that kind of opened up a whole door to me on the relational connectivity side that I would never have thought about if he wasn't intentional about that. And then uh, the other aspect of my childhood that had a big effect is we moved a lot growing mm-hmm. up. My dad was in the oil business. Uh, we I lived 11 different places before I finished high school. And as a result of that, uh, you just have to make a choice when you're in those moments where you're transitioning to a new school, learning a new set of people of, am I going to try to be in the foreground leading or am I just going to shrink to the background and exist there? And so those things played a big impact in my childhood. So you went to uh, Texas a You know, college is one of those times where you kind of, in some sense, find yourself what you're good at. You initially went, uh, you were going to go into business, right? And then what what was it that kind of led to a change where you went decided to go into, uh, I guess, vocational ministry? Well, when when I was at A and M, that was a very formative part of my life, and and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because that's when I really started to get involved actively in leadership roles at Texas A and M. There's almost a thousand student organizations anything you can imagine that's there and and they call it the other education it's your education outside the classroom mm. it's that there's a very holistic leadership culture there that that kind of breeds that and expects that out of its top students and so I, I became heavily involved in that in fact like you mentioned I was heading to the business world wanted to do that uh, was very involved in student government all those kinds of things and what changed for me is I had a very profound call to ministry right before my junior year of college in which I felt the Lord totally changing my heart and my desires and leading me towards ministry. And and frankly, when we're thinking about leadership, that's that's one of the anchors for me in what I'm doing even today, is I have a very clear sense of God's call on my life mm-hmm. that fuels my passion for what I'm doing in a way that drives me and motivates me as a leader. So you went on to seminary, and then you eventually became part of the faculty there, teaching and leading there in the seminary. And one of the things that's interesting about seminary is, is obviously you're really formed theologically, but... Are there some things about leadership, like in, in church life or whether you're leading a nonprofit, that you just can't learn, I guess, in the classroom? So w- what are some of those things that you would you would notice among young seminarians as they would go off uh, into, into the world? Most people think you need to be in a leadership position in order to lead, and they're wrong. And mm-hmm. here's what I mean by that. I don't mean like I'm—it's not like I'm saying the kind of classic leadership euphemism of, you know— Prove yourself to be a leader, take leadership capacity, yeah. even if you don't have the title, and people will see it and respect it. That's true as far as it goes. What I'm saying is you can learn leadership when you are not the decision maker in leadership decisions and, and in decision making. What I mean by that is I always coach people when they're thinking about growing in leadership to think through hypothetical leadership development, hy- hypothetical decision making. Mm-hmm. So in in the seminary life in particular, what I would do when I started on staff in the academic staff of the seminary at the lowest levels, I would watch those that were in leadership over me, look at what kind of decisions they were having to make, try to gather as many of the facts as I could from the vantage point that I had. Mm -hmm. And what I would do is I would try to simulate, okay, if I was in that situation, what would I do? How would I react to that? What decision would I make? And then I would watch them make that decision and then try as often as possible to debrief with them to say, hey, what 
Uh, how did you arrive at that decision? What did, and and I would compare what my decision was to theirs and see see how those matched up and see what I could learn from that. And so what that meant is I got all of the repetition of going mm. through the strategic decision making process with none of the risk because I was my, I wasn't on the line if something messed up or I wasn't holding the bag if things didn't work out like I hoped. And so I think that's an important aspect when it comes to seminary. But I think there's no question that there are certain aspects of leadership you can't learn in a class. When I was at Texas A&M, I took a leadership class. It was helpful in terms of learning frameworks, but it, it doesn't do you any good when you're actually in real-life situations unless you can figure out how to turn that framework into application in that setting. And that's exactly why, while we were still up there at the seminary, we, we made a big investment in developing church-based mm-hmm. internships as an integral part of the curriculum and pointing people to local church involvement in order to do their growth and development, because there are some things that can only be learned in that setting for ministry. One of the things I've learned from you working with you is just kind of visionary leadership to think ahead. You know, you in your position, you interact with leaders from the top, you know, nonprofit organizations, Christian organizations, churches. I guess if you could say, what are one or two common mistakes that leaders make, especially leaders of organizations that uh, that you see in your in your work? Well, I think the first one that comes to mind is when people think of visionary leadership, most of the time they're thinking in the category of the next 6 to 24 months. And that's an important uh, leadership window to think in. You've got to be able to have those intermediate visionary uh, strategies that will take the day-to-day of now and bring a good outcome then. But I think the more important horizon to be thinking on is the five to 10 year and beyond horizon where you're thinking through, if if we could write the script and say, here's what we want this organization to look like, here's how we want it to be positioned, this is where we'd want it to be five to 10 years from now, and what are the steps that it's going to take to get there? Some of those steps are going to be steps that are going to be immediately realizable in the first six to 24 months, but other things are going to have to be uh, set up in order to set the stage for it to come to fruition in the latter years. So that that's one that comes to mind. The other is uh, I, I find that leaders in the nonprofit space that we work in in the ministry settings often do a poor job of allocating scarce resources. Mm-hmm. The the less fancy way to say that is they have a tough time saying no. Mm-hmm. They, they have a tendency when they see opportunities, they think that it has potential. But y- you would be able to attest from our time together here at the ERLC that there are all sorts of great ideas that mm-hmm. are sitting on the shelf right now because we have better ideas to execute yeah. than those. And we want to make sure that we are giving our time and energy and resources to the most strategic, highest impact ideas. And I think there can be a tendency uh, to just take the next good opportunity that comes along and react to that, as opposed to proactively uh, mapping out what is the best strategic use of your resources. Yeah, because there is, I I remember when I pastored, that was one thing I had to really come to a realization. And we had a small church and, you know, there's a tendency to look at other churches and say, well, they're doing this, so we should do this. And I, I think it's probably the same with nonprofit organizations. You look and say, well, they're doing it, we should do it. But you're saying instead, it's better to just say, what specific things has God called us to? What what can we do? Do a few things well, right, instead of trying to do everything poorly. I, I love to look at other organizations and see what they're doing, especially organizations that are not in the space that we're in. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at sports teams to see mm-hmm. how they're handling things. I'm looking at colleges and universities. I'm looking at secular businesses because there are... Uh, one of the most important things you have to learn in leadership is that creativity 
rarely comes by formulating an idea out of thin air and often comes through making a connection that other people haven't made, Mm -hmm. making an adaptation of something that's working in one space and bringing it into your own. And so I think that's one of the main areas where people can grow and develop in this regard is fostering a creativity that allows them to make those connections to do the most strategic things. One of the things that you've developed here, I think that's been really helpful for people who work here, is um, creating a culture of development. So you're not just interested in executing you know, our major initiatives and events, but you want to develop the people that work for you. Maybe talk about why that's important and, and maybe where organizations can sometimes miss on that. In leadership, organizational culture is essential to an effective organization. So when you think about vision, that's what an organization wants to be. Mm-hmm. When you think about strategy, that's what an organization does. When you think about organizational culture, that's what it feels like to work there. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I like to talk about when I visit a friend at a secular business or a ministry setting, a church setting, is what does it feel like to work there? What is it like to be an employee? That's your organizational culture. And organizational culture is foundational to organizational effectiveness because how you operate and what things feel like is automatically going to shape what you do. And for us at the ERLC, uh, the way that I think about organizational culture is an essential part of that culture is an environment of leadership development and progress where my goal is to figure out how can I put people in a position to grow in their areas of responsibility, to stretch themselves in their areas of weakness, to play to their strengths in order to put them in a greater position for success so that we can maximize the impact of the organization. And so one of the ways that we do that is by strategic leadership development. Sometimes that's going to happen with multiple staff members coming together to do things, whether that's retreats or Mm -hmm. intentional conferences to grow and develop or interacting with others. And then a lot of times it's just going to happen on an individual level. So guys like you and others in the organization can attest to the fact that we've spent hours on the phone with experts in our area, picking their brain about, hey, how do y'all do things at your organization? And trying to learn from the best in the business, what are the best practices, what are the strategies? And and the reason uh, that that's so important is leadership development and organizational growth doesn't happen by accident. Mm -hmm. If you're not scheduling that, if you're not planning for it, then what's going to happen is you're just going to take care of the next urgent thing, the next critical thing that comes along, and not intentionally grow in those areas. So let's talk about crisis management. You know, when, when you're a nonprofit organization or Christian organization or church of any size, there's going to be, inevitably, there's going to be a crisis, whether it's big or small. Maybe someone criticizes something you do, maybe something happens within, you know, that's troubling in leadership or something. And so one of the things I think you've really been great at here is just, uh, you know, when there when there's a, I almost call, always call it a crisis, but when there's just something that, you know, there's a negative uh, event, if you will, uh, how do you counsel leaders to, to uh, lead their organization through that? A crisis management really hinges on your ability to manage and set and control expectations as an organization. Mm-hmm. So for us, we're not surprised every week when there's a crisis that comes up, yeah. whether that's in the news cycle, whether that's a critic, mm-hmm. whether, that's, whether that's something that requires a rapid response. And one of the ways that we do that is we, we don't know what the crisis is going to be. We don't know what it is that we're going to have to respond to, but we know something's coming, and so we're not caught off guard with that. And, and one of the things that I find when it comes to crises, especially in church contexts and other ministry contexts, is that if you are 
it's hard enough to deal with a crisis when you're prepared for one potentially coming. It's even more mm-hmm. difficult when you're caught off guard, when you're surprised, when you mm-hmm. didn't have a category for that. And for us, theologically, we shouldn't be surprised that in a fallen world that crises come, yeah. that brokenness manifests itself in ways that require rapid response. And so part of what we're trying to do organizationally is to have a culture where we are not surprised by crisis, we're prepared to respond, and and more importantly, that we leave margin in our work capacity to accommodate those. Because one of the one of the fastest ways you can lead to burnout is by not leaving margin for crisis. Mm-hmm. That if you're running at 100% all the time with what you know has to get done for the week, where you're not leaving, say, 10, 20% of your work capacity to be able to divert to urgent issues, whether it's strategic projects or crises, you're just going to run yourself to a point where you can't keep up that pace. And so part of what we do here is we don't know what the crisis is going to be. We don't know what's going to require rapid response, but we know something's coming. And so we leave some margin in the work capacity in order to accommodate that as best we can. One more question. This is this is really good stuff. So, you know, we're kind of at the 30,000-foot level. We're kind of a national organization uh, within a, a large denomination. So if you're talking to the local church pastor, He's busy guy. He's managing his staff. He's studying for for Sunday. He's probably dealing with some crisis in his church. He's probably have to do a funeral or a wedding or something. All kinds of things. How would you encourage him to really help him grow in his leadership in a way that's scalable? So, are there certain books to read, or they're just kind of ways that he can easily learn on the fly through conversations or whatever? What is your advice to to guys like that? When I think about leadership, the key issue in leadership is your passion for what you're doing. I think that's the most foundational thing. It's not about your productivity strategies. Mm -hmm. It's not even necessarily first about your organizational culture or your vision. Passion is foundational for leadership, and here's why. I don't have any trouble being motivated to do the things that I care about, the Mm -hmm. things that I'm passionate about. You know, when I when I have a chance to go enjoy some Tex-Mex food, you don't have to convince me of <laughs> exactly. that. Exactly. When it's time for Aggie football season, I'm ready to watch those with great eagerness. I will do whatever it takes to to carry out the things that I care most about. And so, for the pastor in a small church situation that's grinding through the daily work week, all the way to the business executive uh, in a Fortune 500 company, every one of them has to have the same foundational issue, and that's a passion for what they're doing. And so, my counsel would be, what does it look like to uh, intentionally foster and create a passion for your role in the situation you find yourself in? And that's going to be different for each person. For me, what that looks like is I do try to read widely. I try to read some in leadership, biographies of good leaders, but I really find it most fascinating to read about who's doing things effectively in organizations outside my own Mm. and intentionally think about crossover impact into my particular area. But in addition to that, a lot of it has to do with the community of people that I'm surrounding myself with. I've got friends who are great leaders. We care a lot about leadership. We care a lot about spurring each other on in the areas in which we're responsible. And I know those guys are holding me accountable. They're they're holding me up and encouraging me. And so having that kind of community of people surrounding you, whatever it takes to maintain that passion, and, and oftentimes having a good vision for what you're trying to do in the big picture can help you maintain that passion in the small picture of day-to-day work. Bonus question. So how do you think the Aggies are going to do this year? 
Well, the the pundits are down on us. They're picking us sixth in the SEC West. But, hey, we're returning the eight starters on both sides of the ball, including uh, one of the top quarterbacks in the country. We only play three games outside of the state of Texas for the entire season, including one right here in Nashville against Vanderbilt, which I'm excited to check out. And so I could see us ranging anywhere from an 8-5 and five to a on the high end, an 11-1 season. So I'm going to split the difference and think somewhere in the category of 9-3, and three, hopefully 10-2. and two. So that's a textbook example of good leadership. Optimism, but realistic expectations. That's right. All right. Well, thank you, Philip, for joining us uh, today. Glad on the to way be here. Home. Well, I want to thank my colleague, Philip Bethencourt, for a great conversation on leadership and the church and Christian organizations, a lot to chew on there, a lot to learn from. I've learned from him immensely on these topics. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you let us know by sending us an email to wayhome at erlc.com or better yet, write a review on iTunes or Stitcher. If you'd like to hear more of our conversations with people like Oz Guinness or David Platt or Matt Chandler, or, uh, Molly Hemingway, Karen Swallow Pryor, and many others, check out the podcast page at danieldarling.com. We have them all listed there, or else you can subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or however you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to go to my website, danieldarling.com, and download the free chapter of my new book, The Original Jesus. And if you feel so inclined to order a copy from your favorite retailer. But for now, thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. <laughs>